Thursday, December 22nd, 1932. We're at a tremendous construction site between 48th and 51st Street, near 6th Avenue in Midtown Manhattan. Workers are putting the finishing touches on a music hall across the street before they break for the Christmas holiday. The music hall will open next week. While 1932 was a harsh year for many in America, it was a profitable one for David Sarnoff and the Radio Corporation of America. RCA owns two successful broadcasting networks as part of the National Broadcasting Company. And soon, this music hall, along with their new office tower at 30 Rockefeller Center, would be known as Radio City. Competition in the broadcasting industry was fierce. NBC's chief rival was William S. Paley's Columbia Broadcasting System. It managed to keep the talented executive and his upstart network at bay, thanks, in part, to NBC's dual red and blue networks. But the 1930s would be a decade of battles for David Sarnoff and RCA. As the broadcasting industry grew, NBC's chokehold on radio affiliates would loosen. New Deal philosophies and business began to take over, with more and more Americans out of work. Many likened RCA's dual network chain to a radio monopoly. And over the next decade and a half, NBC's status as the industry standard would be usurped. The FCC would get involved, then the U.S. Justice Department, as RCA was forced to sell off their blue network. And thanks to David Sarnoff's stubbornness, NBC lost a great deal of talent. Perhaps all of that pales in comparison to the experiments that'll take place at 30 Rockefeller Center laboratories in the coming years. While the radio industry was booming, the ever-forward-thinking David Sarnoff had already begun to focus on a new invention, television. episode number 82. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we focus on the state of the radio broadcasting industry in the late 1930s and early 1940s as broadcasting booms while the world goes to war. During a 10-year period between 1935 and 45, the mutual broadcasting system would rise as the NBC Blue Network became the American Broadcasting Company. CBS would continue to expand its news department and garner the reputation of the most fertile landscape for radio programming, giving opportunities to writers, directors, actors, journalists, and producers who go on to become household names. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, thank you. Welcome to the show. You can find this show on iTunes, everywhere you get a podcast, and at thewallbreakers.com. Our opening theme song is Brother, Can You Spare a Dime? Written by Yip Harburg and Jay Gorney in 1930. It was one of the best-known American songs of the Great Depression. And, in 1932, it was recorded by radio's most popular vocalist, Rudy Valley. If you've been enjoying Breaking Walls, give a listen to the now-finished six-part audio drama miniseries called A Man Named Marlowe. It takes place in 1935 Los Angeles and stars Raymond Chandler's most famous private detective. It's available in the same feed as this podcast. And, if you're listening via iTunes, an iTunes rating would really help. 
the more people who do, the more people who will be able to discover breaking walls. You may also support these shows and unlock bonus content and other clips for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. Now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? Once in cocky suits, gee, we look swell. Full of that Yankee doodle dime. This is Robert Trout at our election headquarters in the newsroom in New York. The results of the 1932 election now appear to be certain. The ticket of Roosevelt and Garner has won a clear-cut majority over the Republican ticket. On November 8, 1932, 22,817,883 voters elected Franklin D. Roosevelt as the 32nd President of the United States. It was a landslide victory over the incumbent Herbert Hoover. It had been Hoover's success with the radio industry as the Secretary of Commerce that catapulted him to election in 1928. However, by 1932, the U.S. was in the throes of the Great Depression, and it was clear that change was needed. A quarter of the American workforce was unemployed, two million people were homeless, and industrial production had fallen by more than half since 1929. First of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. President Roosevelt was inaugurated on a brisk Saturday, March 4th, 1933. The following day, he called for a bank holiday closing everyone in the nation, many of whom were already failing. He then called for a special session of Congress on March 9th. Congress quickly passed Roosevelt's Emergency Banking Act. Rather than nationalizing the financial industry, the bill used federal assistance to stabilize privately owned banks. My friend, I want to talk on Sunday, March 12th, to help explain his actions, Roosevelt took to the airwaves with the first of his now famous fireside chats as president. He believed that his administration's success depended on a favorable dialogue with the people. Radio, possibly the biggest method of mass communication, would allow him to take the initiative. Newsman Bob Trout, who would later be known as the Iron Man of radio, was working for CBS. After the March 4th inauguration, the banks were closed. The country seemed to be in a rather bad way. Lots and lots of people were terribly depressed. Everybody was worried. People were questioning. Nobody knew what was going to happen. It was really a rather touchy time. And the president announced that he was going to make a, a talk from the White House to explain just what was going on and why the banks were closed and why nobody could cash a check and why, even if you had a job, you probably didn't have any money to eat on. The White House just said that there was to be a, a, a talk by the president. So. At the CBS Washington offices, um, we prepared two introductions for me to use to put the president on the air. The man who actually thought of the phrase fireside chat was Harry Butcher, who at that time was the director and the, uh, the general manager of CBS's Washington station. It was his idea that this would be just the kind of folksy touch that might do for the introduction for the president. And the whole little introduction was about the president is going to talk to you just as if he had come into your home and sat down beside the fireplace in your living room and gave a sort of fireside chat. It was that kind of introduction. So we sent both introductions over to the White House for the president to choose, and a little while later, Marvin McIntyre, the president's secretary, telephoned Harry Butcher and said, oh, the president likes that folksy one, and so I used it. When the banks reopened on Monday, March 13th, stock prices rose by 15 percent, and bank deposits exceeded withdrawals. Thanks in part to radio, the bank panic had ended. I joined NBC in 1929. 
I stayed with the broadcasting business at NBC as a member of the staff of NBC until war was declared because an engineer at that time, well, he did everything but sweep the floor. (laughs) And when I came to NBC, I came as a sound engineer, as a studio engineer. Naturally, I had good many programs at that time, both musical as well as non-musical programs, dramatic programs, and all dramatic programs in those days all had musical interludes. From there until I finally got to the Toscanini programs. I first started out with the Toscanini programs. Since I spoke Italian, I could understand the old gentleman, and he could understand me. We got along famously. I went on as an engineer, and little by little I took on the duties of production engineer as well. As far back as 1932, a group of executives from the National Broadcasting Company conceived the idea that their secondary broadcasting chain, the Blue Network, could progress faster and serve its stations, advertisers, and the listening public much better if it were to become an independent network. This philosophical discussion amongst high-level employees is interesting to note, but in 1932, the U.S. unemployment rate had reached a staggering 23.6%. No company such as RCA was going to voluntarily give birth to competition and cut their own profit at the same time. Radio City's Music Hall opened on December 27, 1932, and the RCA building at 30 Rock opened the following May. Aldo Gisalbert was an NBC studio engineer in those early days. In September of 1972, He sat down with Dick Bertel and Ed Corker. Well, the official opening of Radio City, of course, Radio City was used almost a year before its official opening. Not used entirely. There were studios that were being used occasionally while others were being built. And, of course, all programs were then fed directly to 7-Eleven Fifth Avenue and redistributed, so no one knew that actually Radio City was actually being used. However, the real, true, and official opening came at a beautiful time They decided to do something spectacular. And, you know, we're Americans. When we have to do something spectacular, we have to do something spectacular. Everything's been done before, but this has never been done. So they decided to take the combined orchestras, the New York Philharmonic, every single available man on NBC, which was a symphony and all classical men, as well as the Chicago Symphony and the Detroit Symphony. Now, there were over 400 men in this orchestra. There were 36 basses. One would look over, and there would be a forest of bull fiddles, man sawing them in half, umpteenth number of timpanies, and all glockenspiels, and chimes, and every conceivable kind of percussion instrument. Violins, to say the least, there were 170-some-odd violins. It was a fantastic exhibition. Well, they decided to do the Brook Violin Concerto. This was picked up on one microphone, gentlemen, in Studio 8H. Through this, we also found that Studio 8H, as beautiful as it was, as acoustically right as it was, was also inadequate. Nothing would be adequate for 400 pieces or over, but even for an orchestra of 70 or 100 men. The platforms would come out from the wall extend out at various different levels. However, they were far too wide and not deep enough. So when the NBC Symphony Orchestra and Toscanini was brought to Studio 8H much later, 
Studio 8H had to be redesigned. Today, Studio 8H is used as the set of Saturday Night Live. In 1934, Congress passed the Communications Act. This abolished the Federal Radio Commission and transferred jurisdiction over radio licensing to a new Federal Communications Commission. This new FCC also took on jurisdiction over broadcasting chain carriers, such as telephone and telegraph companies, like AT&T. This is station W2XK, an experimental transmitter of the National Broadcasting Company. We are operating on a frequency of 52 megacycles by authority of the Federal Communications Commission. A test program follows. General Harvard, I'm sure this occasion must be as gratifying to you as it is... As Aldo Gisalbert mentioned, early renovations to NBC Studios at 30 Rockefeller Plaza weren't out of the ordinary. By 1935, NBC renovated Studio 3H, but not for radio. You're hearing... An NBC RCA clip from July 7, 1936. Although our medium today on Breaking Walls is audio, this audio is not from a radio broadcast. This is the first official television broadcast made by NBC in history. The man you're hearing is David Sarnoff. Well, that's right, General. It seems rather anomalous for me to be... Uh, in mid-1936, RCA began to air small-scale, irregularly scheduled television programming to an audience of some 75 viewers in the homes of high-level RCA staff and a dozen or so sets in the closed-circuit viewing room in offices on the 52nd floor of the RCA building. While RCA's viewing room often hosted visiting organizations or corporate guests who saw a live program being produced in the studio's many floors below. Viewership of these early NBC broadcasts was tightly restricted to those authorized by the company, whose installed set base eventually reached about 200. of light, a cloud of dust, and a hearty high silver, the Lone Ranger. On September 29, 1934, a new network launched. It was formed by WOR New York, WLW Cincinnati, WXYZ Detroit, and WGN Chicago, and backed by a 10-share cooperative promise to trade popular regional programming with each other, like the Lone Ranger. The network was called the Mutual Broadcasting System. At this time, NBC and CBS controlled almost all of the most powerful clear channel and regional radio stations. Clear channel stations are protected from interference and are required to broadcast at at least 10,000 watts of power. By 1936, Mutual had convinced John Shepard III's Yankee Network with its Boston flagship station WAAB and 13 affiliates around New England 
to join their network. They also obtained coast-to-coast -coast status when the regional California-based Don Lee station chain, comprised of KHJ Los Angeles, KFRC San Francisco, KMJ Fresno, KWG Stockton, and KFBK Sacramento, left CBS after rebuffing sale overtures from William Paley. The same year, the Mutual Broadcasting System received positive press for their Republican and Democratic National Convention news coverage. And by January of 1937, Mutual's affiliate count was up to 38. So long as these problems are not solved, so long as ignorance and poverty remain on earth, these words cannot be useless. These words set forth the soul and spirit of one of the world's great literary masterpieces, Les Miserables. Out of the depths of his pity for suffering mankind, Victor Hugo drew a compelling story, one that will live so long as bewildered humanity shall continue to grope toward the light. Tonight, WOR and the Mutual Network bring you the first of seven broadcasts based on this great novel. Each episode will depict some vital development in the epic of Jean Valjean. Orson Welles, author, director, and actor, has assembled a notable cast and offers an interpretation created specifically for radio presentation. It was in 1937 that Mutual Broadcasting cemented itself as the nation's third major network. That July, they premiered a seven-part adaptation of Les Miserables out of WOR in New York. It was produced, written, directed by, and starred a 22-year-old Orson Welles and featured many of his Mercury Theater performers. It was the Mercury's first appearance on the air. The man who wants food and a bed. One moment, monsieur. Good evening. Is dinner ready? Monsieur, I'm sorry. I cannot receive you. Are you afraid I won't pay you? I have money. I'll pay in advance. I have no room. Well, then, put me in the stable. I'll pay you. I'm sorry. Well, the attic or a corner of the kitchen. I must have lodging. We'll see after dinner. I can't give you dinner. But I'm hungry. I've been walking since sunrise. Twelve leagues. I'm hungry. Get out. What do you mean? You heard me. Get out. But I... I don't understand. Even with this added prestige, Mutual still found it difficult to obtain affiliates from stations competitive in size to those affiliated with NBC and CBS. Late in the year, Mutual pressed the Federal Communications Commission to conduct an investigation into the radio network practices employed by broadcasting's two biggest companies. Simultaneously, local affiliates of NBC and CBS across the country began to complain that the networks were forcing them to carry programs they didn't want to, and at other times, refusing to give them programs if they had an affiliation with other networks. CBS lawyer Joe Ream would tell his affiliates, we're in a corporate marriage, but you want to cheat on your wife. It was to no avail. The complaints persisted, and in 1938, the FCC agreed to look into it. To cover that story, CBS put together the first World News Roundup, which I later anchored in New York, 
with hastily hired correspondents in London, Paris, Berlin, Rome, and Washington. And from then on, CBS Radio News just grew and grew, outgrowing the broadcast pattern that required mellow-toned announcers to read the news, and in their place put men who knew what they were talking about, wrote their own scripts, ad-libbed knowledgeably when necessary, were ready to go on the air in emergencies with the requisite background to analyze and explain the situation, whatever it might be. Back in 1933, a newspaper publishers decided that radio had scooped the press once too often. They closed their wire services to the networks and demanded the normally free-of-charge radio schedules would now be considered paid advertising. The result was a press war. CBS and NBC suddenly found themselves in the business of getting their own news. It forced them to develop their own news correspondence. Men such as Lowell Thomas quickly became household names. When I started and took Floyd Gibbons' place, I had all the air of the world to myself alone. Seems impossible. Both here and in the rest of the world, I had the only daily news broadcast anywhere in the world. The news war went on for two years. Press associations like the Associated Press and the United Press boycotted any product that sponsored a radio program on the networks, while simultaneously opening their own radio stations. NBC's first news director was Abe Schechter. What we did was we gathered the news really by telephone. We had 100 or 150 stations on the network. We had the teletypes. We alerted all of them to tell us of what was happening in their area. If it was anything very big, very important. And for instance, New York Police Department has now and had then, I guess, what they call a, a teletype or a communications bureau. And I used to have a regular system. I give them Rudy Valley broadcast tickets, which was the big show in those days. We weren't so far behind, and when they called us, then we'd follow up on the telephone. The press association began to get worried, especially with President Roosevelt being a huge proponent of radio's ability to communicate. As did the major networks. It wasn't in anybody's best interest for America's two main information hubs to be at war with each other. CBS's John Daly was, at that time, working as a White House correspondent. Your principal function really was just to be there in case of great events, one, and two, to supervise and to put the president on in the event that he had some wish to make a fireside chat or any other address to the country. Needless to say, it's heady wine for a 23-year-old, about 24-year-old young man to, to uh, go over to the White House and have the president uh, greet him as a friend. And those days covering the White House was wonderful fun, you see. There were very few of us. And everywhere the president went, we went with him. We went down to Warm Springs. We'd go down and take two houses on the, on the, at Warm Springs. Uh, this meant that there were 12, 14 reporters there. And if he was invited to a party, we were invited to a party. And we had a deep, fine, familial relationship. Eventually, CBS and NBC and the National Association of Broadcasters who represented local stations called a meeting with the AP, the International News Service, and the UP. The meeting took place on December 11, 1933 at the Hotel Biltmore. NBC and CBS agreed to drop their news-gathering organizations, while the publishers agreed to set up a press radio bureau to furnish the networks with news. But by then, so many local and national radio stations were so successful at gathering their own news, they ignored the press agreement. Here's CBS News correspondent William Dunn explaining. 
Back in the early 30s, the press associations refused to sell news to us. They just wouldn't let us in on the thing. So, White, Abe Schechter, and several others like that uh, got together and organized their own news service. And CBS had a pretty fair little news service going with correspondents in Washington, Chicago, several of the key places. It was effective enough that the press associations got worried. So they agreed to set up an outfit called Press Radio News, which all the press associations contributed to. And they furnished the networks with a certain amount of canned news every day. The press association's capitulation was proof of the deepening power of radio's penetration into the American culture. The publishers also had a fatal goof. When the German passenger airship, the Hindenburg, was scheduled to make a normal landing in Lakehurst, New Jersey on May 6, 1937, the press association assumed it was too ordinary to cover. WLS sent a reporter named Herbert Morrison to cover it so that he could make a recording of the landing for a later broadcast. slacked up a little bit. The back motors of the ship are just holding it just enough to keep it from... It's right under flash. Get this, Charlie. Get this, Charlie. It's crazy. And it's crashing. It's crashing terrible. Oh, my. Get out of the way, please. It's burning and bursting into flames and, and it's falling on the morning pass. And all the folks between that this is terrible. This is the one of the worst catastrophes in the world. Oh, it's, 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 it's places. 20, oh, four or five hundred feet into the sky. And it, it's a terrific crash, ladies and gentlemen. The smoke and the flames now. And the flame is crashing to the ground. Not quite to the morning mass. All the humanity and all the prayers are just screaming around here. I don't do it. I can't even talk to people. There's friends around there. It's a... It's, it's a oh. I, I can't talk, ladies and gentlemen. Honestly, it's just like there are massive smoking wreckage. And everybody can't hardly breathe and talk and screaming. Lady, I, I, I'm sorry. Honestly, I, I can hardly breathe. I'm going to step inside where I cannot see it. Charlie, that's terrible. As Europe was headed toward an actual war, the radio networks quickly began to establish themselves with posts all across the world. Prior to Anschluss in 38 and Germany's investment of Austria, while there were news broadcasts, professional news staffs in the sense that we know them today hardly existed, at that time, for instance, Ed Morrow, who had been director of Talk CBS New York, had changed to uh, European director CBS. This would be, I would think, in 36 or early 37, with his principal function, actually, to arrange, for instance, for the Pope's Easter message to be broadcast to the United States for the music festivals, etc. It was more of a question of special event programming from Europe, as, for instance, my work in Washington was concerned principally with special events. When Anschluss came, as you know, Ed Morrow, frantically looking for staff, found Bill Shira in Spain, where he had been with INS, and sent Shira off to Vienna to cover Anschluss and began to build a European staff, out of which came Severide, Collingwood, etc. Under the impetus of Anschluss, Paul White, who was the father of CBS News, and I think a man to whom the industry owes a great deal and doesn't quite recognize it, Paul White began to build in CBS the great news staff, which uh, saw it through the war years and, and I think took the network to great reputation thereafter. The program of St. Louis Blues, originally scheduled for this time, has been canceled. 
Representative Maury Maverick of Texas, scheduled at 8.15 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, will be heard instead at 8.45 p.m. this evening, speaking on the subject, Too Many Battleships and War. Tonight, the world trembles, torn by conflicting forces. Throughout this day, event has crowded upon event in tumultuous Austria. Meanwhile, the outside world, gravely shaken by the Austrian crisis, moves cautiously through a maze of diplomatic perils. Since the German troops crossed the Austrian border on the March 13, 1938, backed by William Paley, CBS launched the World News Roundup as a one-time special in response to Hitler's annexation of Austria the prior day. It was hosted by Bob Trout. World News Roundup would soon become a regular program. The program began at the time in the year 1938, when Hitler's Germany imposed Anschluss on Austria, and pretty much for that reason. It was being a nasty winter, and I was home with a bad cold. We had a news broadcast for the day scheduled from Vienna. But Ed Clover, then executive vice president of CBS, called me to give me the bad news that facilities had been denied us. This was pretty rough. During the preceding year, I had been in Austria on a visit during which I had gone to Salzburg with the director general of the Austrian Broadcasting Service to discuss the possibility that CBS would make some special broadcasts of the Salzburg Music Festival. The director general and I had established a very pleasant working relationship. When Clarber told me we were being frozen out of Vienna, I picked up the phone and asked the overseas operator to put me through to the Austrian capital, never stopping to think in my feverish condition of the confusion that must be reigning there. I therefore wasn't surprised, as I should have been, when my phone rang back in a few minutes, and there was my friend, the Austrian Broadcasting Director General. I told him how distressed I was that his organization was not giving us facilities. Before I could go further, he broke in with a sobbing voice to say, I'm sorry, Mr. Paley. I'm no longer in charge here. I can't do anything for you. You know I would if I could. Then there was a click, and the connection was broken. The Nazis had moved in. This is Ali Silva of Fireside Mystery Theater, coming to you at a time of great peril. Some fiend has tied me to a rope dangling just a few feet over a giant boiling cauldron of... What is that? It smells like gazpacho? A gazpacho is supposed to be served cold. Oh, whatever. Why would I put myself in such a situation? Because we at Fireside Mystery Theater will do whatever it takes to create exciting audio drama. Enjoy our acclaimed anthology series of original eerie radio plays, performed before a live audience by a full cast of magnificent actors and a crew of amazing musicians and technicians. Just go to FiresideMysteryTheater.com for show listings, info about us, and links to our podcast. Take a listen for yourself today and find out why our podcast is among one of the top audio drama series out there. Oh, brother. That villain is cutting my rope. Well, that must mean my time is up. So tune in and subscribe to the Fireside Mystery Theater podcast. Oh, and be sure to mind the shadow. In 1938, as the FCC began to look into the business practices of CBS and NBC, they acquired a new chairman, James Lawrence Fly. He was an ardent supporter of Roosevelt's New Deal philosophy. By 1938, Roosevelt was no longer pursuing relief programs that relied on cooperation with big business. In the president's eyes, big business had undermined the National Recovery Act. 
The second wave of New Deal programs were designed to combat corporate monopolies. In Fly's view, NBC and CBS were trying to monopolize control of the nation's radio stations. By 1938, NBC had 154 affiliates. 23 stations were directly affiliated with the Red Network, flagship by WEAF. 24 stations were directly affiliated with the Blue Network, flagship by WJZ, both in New York. The remaining 107 affiliates could air programs from both networks. WEAF New York. Between the two, the Red Network operated more of the high-power clear channel stations. WEAF had originally been part of AT&T's pre-RCA merger chain. WJZ began as part of Westinghouse and had largely used free talent. During the 1930s, NBC Blue did carry some well-known five- and six-day-a-week serialized dramas, including Vic and Sade, Clara Lou and M, Betty and Bob, and Little Orphan Annie. It sure is. And here he comes. We don't want to be running like this. He might get excited and not know us. Stop, Joe. Stop. All right. But the Red Network had the most powerful stations and strong popular programming. Many sponsors insisted on placing their programs on NBC Red. Although NBC Blue had some popular sponsored shows, its schedule consisted largely of network-sustained news, public affairs and talk programs, concerts by... Arturo Toscanini's NBC Symphony Orchestra, and rural-aimed programs like the National Farm and Home Hour. New programs often made their debut on NBC Blue and were moved to NBC Red when they became popular because the Red Network stations carried about three-fourths of NBC's commercial programs. Industry observers commented that NBC, from 1927 until 1943, used the Blue Network more as a foil than an all-out competitor. In May of 1940, after a three-year investigation, the FCC issued a scathing report on chain broadcasting. Chain broadcasting is the act of connecting two or more radio stations of a broadcast network to broadcast the same program at the same time. The report attacked the affiliation policies of NBC and CBS, as well as the talent booking agency practices. It concluded that the extent of control exercised by the two major networks over the entire radio industry was not in the public interest. The report proposed limiting each network to one affiliated station per city and limiting one network per company, which would have had a direct impact on NBC's dual network ownership. By that year, mutual broadcasting was already on par with the industry leaders in terms of their affiliate roster size. Still, because mutual affiliates were mostly in small markets or lesser stations than large ones, the network lagged behind in advertising revenue. In 1940, NBC took in 11 times as much advertising profits as Mutual. NBC and CBS argued that their overhead cost was also much higher. In 1940, MBS employed just 72 people, while CBS employed 1,900 and NBC 4,600. Mutual's cumulative billing for the first eight months of 1940 was slightly less than $2.5 million. CBS's in that time was roughly $25.8 million, and NBC's was $31 million. Mutual argued as a cooperative they were being blocked by NBC and CBS's corporate structure. 
Perhaps none of the networks were being completely transparent. January 1st, 1941 issue of Broadcasting Magazine noted that in Greater New York during the previous October and November, WOR and its 135,000-watt transmitter held five of the top six rated 15-minute daily serial programs. WOR was the Mutual Broadcasting System's flagship station. That same issue contained a spread ad taken out by RCA touting the advertisement revenue growth of the Blue Network. NBC had sensed the coming litigation and had begun to divest themselves from the Blue Network, splitting off their advertising and sales departments from the Red. The magazine predicted another boom year for the radio industry. In May of 1941, the FCC issued formal rules to break up what it perceived to be monopolies in radio. Its main desire was to get NBC to sell one of its networks. It also wanted to ensure that both CBS and NBC couldn't operate multiple stations in the same city. There was good reason for the FCC's concern. On Friday, September 12, 1941, a comedy variety program called Ballantine Beer's Three Ring Time began on Mutual. Three Ring Time was the network's first program to originate from the West Coast, designed to make Mutual a true competitor in national non-sports-related broadcasting. Within Mutual, hopes for the program rested on the unlikely starring tandem of Charles Lawton, Milton Berle, and singer Shirley Ross. Of the 77 coast-to-coast -coast Mutual affiliates to carry the program, 14 of them were in cities served by less than four full-time stations, i.e., less than enough to allow Mutual, CBS, and both NBC networks one outlet apiece. This meant the networks had to share time on these stations. All 14 of the stations were NBC affiliates on five-year contracts. Mutual could air programs on these affiliates, but NBC had a 28-day option to take over any time slot it chose. Not only that, it could air programs associated with other networks. NBC quickly exercised the option on 10 of the 14 stations for the half hour when Three Ring Time was airing. Shortly after, NBC also announced that it would carry Three Ring Time on some of its stations. By December, six of the 10 stations on which the program had started for Mutual were among those carrying it for NBC Blue. NBC effectively stole Mutual's program and put Three Ring Time on its secondary network. In 1941, NBC and CBS controlled 50 of the country's 52 clear channel stations. They had at their disposal 85% of the nighttime radio power available. Because they held dominant contracts with these stations, they were without any full-time competition in 45 cities with populations of 50,000 or more. Mutual was left out in the cold. The week after Three Ring Time first aired, Anti-monopoly hearings began in Washington, D.C. By December, NBC and CBS had managed to assert that although they made a ton of money, they were also spending $8 million a year on sustaining programs. The FCC observed that NBC had utilized the Blue Network to block competition from CBS and Mutual, giving its Red Network an unfair advantage. Because Mutual was a cooperative network established years after NBC and CBS entrenched themselves, it was excluded from 
are only lamely admitted to many important markets. But the FCC's proposed regulations were sweeping and revolutionary. The new rules wouldn't have been as simple as breaking up a monopoly. It would have required that no station anywhere in the U.S. be linked by an option contract to one network. On the face of it, no chain broadcasting would mean no NBC and no CBS. Ruling in favor of this breakup could prevent any centrally controlled network from forming within the radio industry. It would have sent radio back to the chaotic years of the 1910s. Appeals were filed, but the Christmas and Hanukkah holidays were coming. It was thought by the experts that hearings could stretch into the new year. Someday, we may get our fingers burned, mind our own business, speak softly, carry a big stick, and keep an eye on Japan as far as this side of the Pacific is concerned. Clyde Pangborn, famous flying man, testifies before a congressional committee that, in his opinion, America is threatened by only one enemy, and that enemy is Japan. He testifies that Japan has perfected man-operated aerial torpedoes in which the plane and the bomb are one, an instrument deadlier than any known weapon, certain to bring death to the operator. Yet thousands of Japanese, says Pangborn, have already volunteered for the honor of dying as pilots of these infernal weapons of infernal modern warfare. We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, by air, President Roosevelt has just announced. The attack also was made on all naval and military activities on the principal island of Oahu. The Symphony No. 1 in F minor, but a modern Russian control... On December 7, 1941, the Japan attacked Pearl Harbor and Manila, thrusting the United States into World War II. Interestingly enough, the prophetic message broadcast by Edwin C. Hill warning Americans about Japan, was broadcast in December of 1935, a full six years before Pearl Harbor Day. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt this broadcast for some last-minute bulletins. Warsaw. Europe had been at war since September 1st, 1939. On that date, Germany invaded Poland, breaking the terms of the Munich Agreement with France and England. War was immediately declared by British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain. Comedian Bob Hope had a unique experience that September 1st. I personally was on the Queen Mary crossing from Southampton to New York when this was announced. And I went down into the salon on this Sunday morning, and everybody on that boat was in the salon praying and crying. And I was supposed to do a, a ship's concert. And I told the captain, I said, there's no way I can do a ship's concert with the people in this condition. He said, it might be the best time in the world to do it. And I went on and did that show that night. And I opened up with a very broad joke about the woman that was standing on the corner in London with her dress up over her hat. And a fellow said, lady, you're getting your legs all wet. She says, I don't care. My legs are 50 years old, but the hat's brand new. And they laughed at that. They, they seemed to want the broad humor. They wanted something to make them forget what had just happened. Four days later, on September 5th, 1939, the United States proclaimed neutrality. As this was happening... The radio networks were ramping up their overseas news coverage. Paul White had founded the CBS News Division in 1933. William Dunn remembered White sensing a Pacific theater approaching. White was convinced that we were just one step ahead of a war in the Pacific. 
and nobody was doing anything about it. He said, Bill, I want you to go to the Far East for us. And I went out and I set up correspondence in Manila, in Hong Kong, Tokyo, Chongqing, Singapore, Batavia. I think that was it. By 1940, CBS and NBC had fully mobilized their international news coverage. And not a moment too soon, because on May 10th, Germany attacked France and quickly defeated the French army. The French government left Paris on June 10th, 1940. The Nazis came four days later. CBS correspondent Eric Severide remembered it. The life just simply ran out of the city. It was like a beautiful woman lying in a coma, you know, with her lifeblood just draining out from every, every vein, every street. If there was one positive to take from the encroaching war in Europe, it's that more Americans were tuned into radio sets than ever before. And the uncertainty of the safety of war correspondence overseas made for more alert domestic reporting and ingenious news relays. Ben Grauer was working for NBC. I used to do a roundup, and we'd call in eight or ten capitals of the world. We were beginning to have a staff in each of the great cities, full-time, not stringers. Now, I got word just before I went on that we would go Paris first and then London. So I introduced Paris, and Paris was on. As I was sitting there, and my head was down, musing and listening to what was coming from Paris, while with the other ear I was listening to London, upcoming London, I heard a voice say, look up, Ben. And there was the director of the program in behind the glass booth with a piece of paper written on it, Spain, and signaled me, not London, Spain, Spain. When we finished the show, I suddenly said, oh, who said, look up, Ben? What was all that? He said, with 30 seconds to go, London coming, RCA said they now have the Madrid circuit, and I wanted to get it fast before we lose it. I wrapped in the glass, and you didn't uh, respond. You couldn't hear me. I thought, maybe you're plugged into London. So I said, hey, Fred Bate, I think Ben is plugged into you. Tell him to look up. So Jack's voice went out to London, 3,000 miles. Bate said, hey, look up, Ben. Came back to me 3,000 miles, and I looked up six feet into the director's eyes. The same day France was attacked on May 10th, Neville Chamberlain resigned as Prime Minister of Great Britain, and Winston Churchill was appointed. Shortly thereafter, the British began to evacuate many women, children, and elderly from major cities to the countryside. Three million of those too weak to fight or to help are being moved from the so-called target areas of the large cities to sanctuaries in the British countryside. It is the greatest mass migration in all history. Now, to give you a first-hand account of this evacuation, Columbia calls in London and hears from Mr. Jolie de Lobinier, head of the outside broadcast department of the British Broadcasting Corporation. We take you now to London. That on number 12 platform at Waterloo Station, one of the 10 big metropolitan stations that are engaged today on the evacuation of London's school children. The train's in, and the children are just arriving. I'd like to try and find one of the teachers who's going with them. Yes. Are you going with them? Yes. Tell us now how many you've got to look after here. I've got 141 children and 16 people helping. They've come from one of the poorest districts in London, very very near the famous Elephant and Castle, which no doubt many people have heard. They're all merry and bright. We haven't had a single child crying. And now I think really in my heart they're looking forward to this little adventure because many of them have never seen the country before. We're very grateful for all that's been done for us and to all those who've helped us, we say thank you from the bottom of our heart. One minute, the train's leaving in one minute. Is it? Well, now, children, come on, give them a, give them a song as you go. <laughs> on September 7th, Germany began a 57-day bombing of London. Fred Bate, 
who told Ben Grauer to look up, was NBC's on-field correspondent in the midst of the German air raids. This is London at about 23 minutes past 1 o'clock. Fred Bay speaking. London is now having its 25th successive night raid. Lord Wilton appealed to coffee stores. The carts that used to sell coffee and meat pies to night workers and people just out at night to reopen their businesses as a help in feeding the homeless. Uh, the minister promised that the stall orders would be given gasoline, food, and air raid shelters. CBS's correspondent is Edward R. Murrow. Standing on a rooftop looking out over London. At the moment, everything is quiet. For reasons of national as well as personal security, I am unable to tell you the exact location from which I'm speaking. Off to my left, far away in the distance, I can see just that faint red angry snap of anti-aircraft bursts against this steel blue sky. But the guns are so far away that it's impossible to hear them from this location. About five minutes ago, the guns... He joined the CBS in 1935 as the director of talks like and education. At that time, Bob Trout was CBS's only newsman. Murrow's job was to line up newsmakers who would appear on the network to talk about the issues of the day. Murrow went to London in 1937 to serve as the director of CBS's European operations. Soon after, it was Murrow's job to put together the entire team. Ned Calmer remembered. As war broke and spread to the world, Ed put together the famous European staff of war correspondents who came to be known in the trade as the Murrow Boys and included Charles Collingwood, Eric Severide, Howard Smith, Bill Downs, Larry Lesseur, and later such names as Winston Burdett, Alex Kendrick, David Schoenbrunn. After Germany annexed Austria, CBS broadcast the first episode of the World News Roundup on March 13, 1938. Bill Shire reported from London, Edgar Ansel Morrow reported from Paris, Pierre Huss from Berlin, Frank Gervaisi from Rome, and then Senator Louis W. Schwellenbach from Washington, D.C. We even got into Vienna. Mr. Murrow reported from there. Some of these men were being broadcasters for the first time, but they and the hard-pressed engineers did a superb job. The world was truly getting smaller. Longtime CBS broadcast journalist Dallas Townsend later explained the program's significance. Back in 1938, of course, there was no television, and until the Anschluss crisis, news on radio was on the rudimentary side, now and then a five-minute summary, and that was about all. You have to think of it in that context to realize how daring and unorthodox it was for Paul White, then head of CBS News, and others in the embryonic CBS News organization to conceive and actually to produce a news broadcast which not only gave listeners a serious, extended survey of the world situation, but which made use of shortwave radio to provide direct, multiple reports from the scene of the action. It's routine now. It was unheard of until then. This is Edward Murrow speaking from Vienna. It's now nearly 2.30 in the morning, and Herr Hitler has not yet arrived. No one seems to know just when he will get here, but most people expect him sometime after 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. It's, of course, obvious after one glance at Vienna that a tremendous reception is being prepared. I arrived here by air from Warsaw and Berlin only a few hours ago. I'd like to tell you a few things seen and heard in the course of the day. There was very little excitement apparent in Warsaw. People went quietly about their work. The cafes were full, and the drivers of those horse-drawn cabs were muffled up in their fur coats, and they seemed pretty remote from the crisis. At the end of 1940, 
with every night's German bombing raid, Londoners, who might not necessarily see each other the next morning, often closed their conversations with good night and good luck. Murrow soon adopted the sign-off. All total, there would be 71 air raids on London, and 18,291 tons of explosives were dropped on the city. Murrow was witness to most, if not all, of them. When Murrow returned to the U.S. in 1941, CBS hosted a dinner in his honor on December 2nd at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. 1,100 guests attended, and CBS broadcast the event. Five days later, Pearl Harbor and Manila were attacked. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate, of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. In addition, American ships have been reported torpedoed on the high seas between San Francisco and Honolulu. I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7th, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. I teach my students by using some of Murrow's broadcasts. He was an original. A combination, though, of being able to hold an audience and be serious, never see his likes again. During a blinding raid, when the streets are full of smoke and the sound of the roaring guns, they'll say to you, do you think we're really brave or just lacking in imagination? Well, they've come through the winter. They've been warned that the testing days are ahead. Of the past months, they may well say, we have lived a life, not an apology. And of the future, I think most of them would say, we shall live hard, but we shall live. Mary, no! God, let, let go! I simply don't understand it. Of course. The sound is coming from the basement. It's all right. I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show me what? Gotta get away from those eyes. Get away. Get away. George, get away. no. Are you attracted to the dark? Fascinated by the dramatic? With a side of gruesome and a dash of poetic justice? If you're happy place, 
is a gloomy room at midnight, then you should be listening to the podcast, Twelve Chimes It's Midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can happen. On December 31, 1941, the Antitrust Division of the Department of Justice filed an action against NBC and CBS, seeking to break up the network's methods of operation. This action was separate from the FCC findings. At this point in time, the FCC had no actual jurisdiction to rule over the radio industry. The Department of Justice, on the other hand, most certainly did. On January 8, 1942, NBC officially formed a separate corporate entity for the Blue Network. NBC Red, at this point, became known as simply NBC. The Blue Network was put up for sale with an asking price of $12 million. Two days later, Mutual Broadcasting filed a $10.275 million lawsuit against NBC and its parent company, RCA, alleging a conspiracy to hinder and restrict Mutual from freely and fairly competing in the transmission and commerce of nationwide network programs. While the fierce competition and animosity remained amongst the three networks, the United States' entry into World War II changed the priorities of the U.S. government and public sentiment. Any major company could have become the owner of the Blue Network. As a separate entity, it was the number three U.S. radio chain. Interested buyers included seven Wall Street investment houses, three insurance companies, two commodity manufacturers, a daily newspaper, and a retired capitalist. They'd all come and go, frightened by economic uncertainty and the future of radio broadcasting. In June of 1942, the United States Supreme Court upheld the jurisdiction of the FCC. While the litigation continued in the wake of this ruling, the public and private antitrust litigation was suspended. By December, RCA proudly announced that the Blue Network had ended the year in the black. Despite obstacles, observers gave the Blue a fair chance of finding a buyer in 1943. They pointed to the $11,300,000 worth of gross time the network sold to advertisers during 1942, and the fact that the network had added 30 affiliated stations, ending the year with 146. 20% of the airtime was now sponsored with 40 such programs, and 24 of them being new accounts. At this point in time, advertising agencies were largely responsible for sponsored programs. Clients with products to sell had the agencies on retainer. They put programs together and buy time from the network. On NBC and CBS, programs were always live. As Orson Welles explains. Network shows had to be lined by were. law. The only transcribed shows were syndicated shows and local ones. And you Blue Network leaned heavily on war and children's programs, built up a first-rate staff of newscasters and commentators, especially the one show that they brought with them from NBC Red, The Jurgen's Journal, with Walter Winchell. Now the editorial room of the Jurgen's Journal and Walter Winchell. Good evening, Mr. and Mr. North of South America, and by short wave overseas, let's go to Germany, France. We must take the good news with the bad. One. 
Admiral Linnitz has just announced the Japanese suicide planes have heavily damaged an American hospital ship. The Mercy ship, when attacked, was evacuating wounded from bloody Okinawa. Twenty-nine men aboard were killed. Thirty-three others were wounded. The American hospital ship was the USS Comfort. Stockholm. Unconfirmed dispatches say that Hitler died at noon today in his underground Berlin headquarters, and at his bedside was Joseph Goebbels, rat number two. By January of 1943, as Time magazine reported, the Blue Network was giving advertisers special discounts, charming them with other commercial wrinkles, and violating NBC and CBS's ban on transcribed programs. Transcription discs had been something that local stations and the mutual broadcasting system had employed for years. Here in the U.S., the Blue Network's 41-year-old president, Mark Woods, felt that war workers and others who couldn't listen to live shows in the evenings should be given a chance to hear them transcribed. It was a foretelling of things to come. Meets the gold of the day. In January of 1943, the FCC approved the sale of the Yankee Network, part of Mutual, to the Ohio-based General Tire and Rubber Company. The network had Boston's WNAC, three other owned and operated stations, and contracts with 17 additional affiliates. That's significant, because it was the first time that the FCC approved the sale of any regional broadcasting chain of this magnitude. On May 10, 1943, the Supreme Court upheld the right of the FCC to regulate practically everything that was radio. NBC's hand was being forced. It had to take action and dump the secondary blue network. On July 30, 1943, just over two months after the court's ruling, RCA announced the sale of the network to American Broadcasting System Incorporated, a firm controlled by Edward J. Noble, a former Undersecretary of Commerce who was better known as the chairman of Lifesavers. The price was announced at $8 million. On October 3, 1943, Noble released a letter to the FCC in which he stated that the Blue Network would meet with an open mind to all requests for broadcasting time. Nine days later, the FCC approved the sale, and Edward Noble bought NBC's Blue Network from General David Saroff for $8 million. This led to Mutual dropping its lawsuit. Unfortunately for them, the transfer of the NBC Blue Network to new ownership did little to help Mutual's competitive position. The next week, on October 11th, and then on October 17th, the Justice Department dropped the antitrust proceedings against CBS and NBC, and the federal courts, upon its motion, dismissed Mutual's antitrust claims against the two networks. An early step was to obtain a deep-pocketed backer, on December 28, 1943, Noble sold a 12.5% stake to Time Inc. and a similar stake to advertising executive Chester LaRoche for $500,000 each. For the first two years of ownership, the network was simply known as the Blue Network, before officially changing its name to the American Broadcasting Company in 1945.
sons of men, daughters of the mingled lovers of the many tribes who make us what we are, brothers, sisters by the millions, sitting with us at this table, encircled round us through the far wide-spreading states. What year this is, we shall not soon forget. Remark it, each of you belonging to it, this year shall skulk among the blackest annals ever. Through a series of serendipities, somebody at CB has heard me and thought uh, that I would be an interesting addition to their staff. They engaged me as a director, not knowing that I, my chief interest was writing. And so I parlayed those mm -hmm. talents and became uh, my own producer as well. And in very short time, I was able to latch on to some opportunities that found my programs getting attention in the national publications, Time and other magazines, and there I was on my way. Norman Corwin was hired by CBS in April of 1938 as a director. For the next three years, he honed his craft on shows like Words Without Music, The Pursuit of Happiness, So This Is Radio, and Forecast, until 1941 when he was given the task of taking over the famed Columbia Workshop for 26 weeks. After the bombing of Pearl Harbor and Manila on December 7, 1941, at the behest of President Roosevelt, Corwin penned a 60-minute play in honor of the 150th anniversary of the Bill of Rights. Entitled, We Hold These Truths, it was broadcast on December 15th and simultaneously heard on all four major radio networks. 60 million people tuned in. It was at that time the largest rating share of any dramatic program in the history of broadcasting. Next year, Corwin and Edward R. Murrow combined to produce An American in England on CBS. Corwin intentionally avoided interviewing government officials, choosing instead to focus on everyday people and how they were affected by the war. He made weekly reports from England via shortwave between August 3rd and September 7th. You find that the Yanks and their allies are picking up each other's language and learning each other's customs. This comes from crowding the same pubs, palling around in the airdromes, flying together, bumping into each other in the Strand and Trafalgar Square at country dances. It's not uncommon to hear a Tommy say, What's cooking, old boy? At the outset of his career at CBS, Corbin was fortunate enough to receive name billing on Words Without Music at the behest of a CBS vice president named William Lewis. From then on, many of Corbin's shows had his name attached to them in the title. The name billing was tremendous. From there on, it became the following series was 26 by Corwin, and then there was Columbia Presents Corwin, and there were two of those. By 1944, at only 33 years old, Corwin had free creative reign over his productions. On March 7th of that year, Columbia Presents Corwin debuted on CBS. The show was not offered by CBS to sponsors. It was considered the crown jewel in the CBS lineup. The network purposefully broadcast it for free. Corwin had a knack for getting to the heart of a social or political issue. Rather than dumb down his subjects, he built up mental stimulation in his audience, bringing out the truth in the human condition and invoking true emotion and self-reflection from listeners. By the spring of 1944, the frailty of the human condition was one the entire world had been facing head-on for quite some time. This is Robert St. John in the NBC newsroom in New York. Ladies and gentlemen, we may be approaching a fateful hour. All night long, bulletins have been pouring in from Berlin, 
claiming that D-Day is here, claiming that the invasion of Western Europe has begun. Uh, let me read you several of the latest bulletins. One says that a report unconfirmed by a lie... Early on the morning of June 6, 1944, word began to spread that an Allied invasion of the beaches of Normandy and France had begun. All four major networks sprung into action. At 2.30 a.m., NBC was put on a flash news basis, and their usual trademark GEC chime notes were expanded using a fourth chime, GECC. This alert called all newsmen and commentators to their microphones and called all key operating personnel to their stations. Minutes after the fourth chime sounded, NBC newsman Robert St. John made the announcement in their New York newsroom. Operation D-Day was underway. Well, I presume that means wiped out by the Allies. Uh, as you may have heard on earlier broadcasts, all three German news agencies have begun broadcasting uh, these stories that the invasion is here. But there is no Allied confirmation as yet. The Normandy invasion was a tremendous success, opening up a second European front and forcing the Nazi army to fight both to its west and to its east in a war filled with an incredible amount of serious moments. Back home in the United States, June 6, 1944, and each successive day after, were the most serious of all. It's high noon in New York and time for Kate Smith. Hello, everybody. The people of the United States preferred to take D-Day seriously and prayerfully. There was no confetti, no wild demonstrations. Instead, thousands of Americans responded to the good news in a much finer and better way. Throughout the country, they trooped to blood donor stations and war bond booths. War bond sales increased. Payroll offices of factories were swamped with bond buyers. Some cities started their fifth war loan drive early and have already sold their quotas. Yes, Americans are rallying behind our gallant armies of liberation storming Fortress Europe. But don't forget for one moment that the war is far from won. So here on the home front this noon, let's renew our determination to do everything we can to speed the day of victory for our fighting men. And now, Ted, what's new? The Allied Army of That operator? All right, wait a minute now. Here's the 20 cents. Hello, Pa? This is Eddie. I'm at camp. I say I'm at the camp. Yeah. I've been waiting in line two hours to make this call, Pa. Huh? I'm fine, Pa. How are you? Am I okay and Beanie? Ah, that's good. Look, Pa, listen. Here's why I'm calling. I'm going to be home over the 4th. Yeah. Two-day pass. No, 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 no. By train. I'll get in around dinner time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, look, Pa, a lot of guys are waiting to make calls, so I better hang up. Uh-huh. Okay, I see you Monday night. Bye. Less than a month after D-Day on Independence Day in 1944 at 10 p.m., Columbia Presents Corwin, broadcast a play entitled, Home for the Fourth. Columbia presents Corwin. In this play, two brothers, Eddie and Jim, are away at war. One, Eddie, voiced by Dane Clark, gets a two-day pass for an Independence Day visit home to see his family and his girlfriend, Rita. 
When he gets home, Eddie, his parents, and his kid sister share a dinner together as a family. Eddie's father has been waiting for an important telegram all day. A sergeant. Oh, Eddie. <laughs> Incidentally, Eddie, I, I met Bill Gargan today. Oh, how is Bill? Oh, he's fine. Lieutenant. Got ten days furlough before going overseas. Says he might drop in to dinner. Good, I'd like to see him. Hmm, when are you going to see Rita? Well, she doesn't get off work till eight, and then she's coming over. Oh. Aren't you married, Rita? I would if I were. Ma, would you sit down? I'll bring him. Hello, you. Rita. You're looking well, Edward. So are you. Ask me in, darling. Oh, come here. You're full of lipstick. It's all right. Mark of honor. Here's my handkerchief. All off? Yes. Let's go inside. Rita and Eddie talk of marriage, and he loves her, but he's hesitant. He asks her to wait until the war is over. Later, the pair come outside to hear Eddie's parents having an animated discussion with a neighbor and friend named Bill Gargan, who's also home on leave. They're discussing the merits of idealism in a tear and conference. We figured the folks must be back in their walk, so we went out and we joined them. They were talking with Bill Gargans, who'd met them on their way up the street. Pa was deep in an argument with Bill. I know what I'm talking about, Bill. I fought in the last one. It was the same thing then. They said it was a war to end war and so on and so forth, but it wasn't anything of the kind. It's the same thing today, all over again. Well, I disagree with you, Mr. Eakin. It's an entirely different war. In in, in the hey, first place... What's going on here? Well, hello, Adam. Hello, how are you? Fine, I'm glad. You know Rita, don't you? Yes, of course. How are you, dear? What are you doing? I'm working in a machine and tool factory now. Oh, good. Don't let us interrupt this dogfight. Carry on, gentlemen. Oh, well, we weren't arguing. It's just that Bill here seems to think it can change human nature. No. No, I don't believe that's an issue at all, Mr. Eakin. If, uh, if anything, uh, people's instincts are against war. Was it human nature that got Ed and me into uniforms? No, it was draft board number 17. <laughs> no, it, it wasn't human nature. It was a very inhuman, unnatural thing. Like what? It was fascism, Ed. That's right, Bill. Why, sure. After all, uh, peace and not war is so much a part of human nature that, well, most of us just refuse to believe that the fascists deliberately intended to make war... And we waited until it was almost too late. I still think we're going to have another war after this one. And so do I. Oh, Eddie, you don't. Sure I do. That's defeatist talk, if you ask me. Mr. Eakins, you mean you don't think anybody will have learned anything out of this war? No, I think it's exactly the same kind of war as the last one. Absolutely, I agree with my old man. Well, your old lady doesn't agree with your old man. I think we've made a lot of progress. Good for you. Such as what? Well, the Atlantic Charter and the... Tehran Conference. I bet you don't even know what they stand for. How much do you want to bet, oh, hmm? Oh, never mind, never mind. When you talk that way, you probably know. Well, <laughs> what do they stand for? The Tehran Agreement called for the big three to continue cooperating after the war. Well, I ought to know that when I lectured to the East Side Women's Club about it. It says that Britain, Russia, and we are planning for the day when all the people in the world can live free lives. Free from tyranny and... Uh, well, if I remember the wording, uh, according to each one's varying desires and uh, his own conscience. 
Isn't that right, Mrs. Eaton? Correct. Oh, that all sounds fine, but when I tell you it's idealistic, it's, it's visionary. Well, what do you think? Look, none of the boys, Bill, that I know in the Army go for that idealism stuff, at least not in my outfit. Well, they do in my outfit. Listen, Bill, I've talked with a lot of the boys, including some who've been overseas, and the one thing they want to know is when do they get home? Sure, just as in the last war. Even our letters from Jim are full of it. Oh, soldiers in every war have wanted to go home. Certainly, if you want an example of human nature, that's one, to want to go home. But there's a, there's a big difference in this war. Oh, you hear of men wanting to come home, sure, but you don't hear of any desertions on account of it, as you did in other wars. The American soldier knows he's got to win before he gets home, or else his home won't be worth coming back to. So what's that got to do with the Tehran Conference? What's that got to do with it? Yeah. Everything. What do you suppose our men are fighting for anyway? Oh, ideals, I suppose. Oh, chicken and every hot and dark pot. Oh, that's a fine idea for a young American. Look, we're fighting to get it over with, and that's all. Look, I don't begin to understand your attitude about idealism. You, you and your father seem to think that it's a little embarrassing to be found dead or alive with an ideal. Sure, sure, the terror and uh, agreement's visionary. But so was our Declaration of Independence. Did you ever stop to think of that? Supposing they sat around at Philadelphia 150 years ago making cracks about long hairs and visionaries. But that's different. The Declaration of Independence involved one country in 1776 and a terrorist thing involved oh, a bunch of countries another time. Of you. We were practically 13 separate countries back in 1776. Where's your history? Well, I know. I hear certain people speak about the ideology of this war as though it was something extra. Uh, something you could throw away, uh, dispense with if the going gets tough. Well, I think it's a heck of a lot more important than C rations or K rations or sometimes even ammunition. It's the whole heart and soul of fighting. And I've talked to a lot of GIs, too, and in my experience, it's hardly ever the men who do the fighting who sneer at the reasons why they're fighting. Yes, and the ones who sneer are mostly high-priced columnists who spend the rest of their time kicking about the income tax they have to pay. Sure. The only time the war comes home to them... It's when they get bounced off a plane because they don't have a priority. Uh, what papers do you read, Bill? Yeah, the same papers you read, sir. And I don't have to read the editorials to form my opinion. Just the main headlines and the text of the speeches and the communiques. I've been doing that right along. So have I, ever since Spain. Well, with me, ever since Spain, sure. Yeah. Well, that's all very well. And I still say the men are fighting to get back to where we were before the stinking war. That's all they're fighting for. I think that's enough to fight for. We're not mad at anybody. Well, <laughs> look, Ed, well, neither of us is on his sleeve to spend our time arguing. All I can say personally is that if I'm going to die in this war, I'd like it to be for an ideal. For something, something pretty awful special. And I think the promise of Terahan is, is that... I think the whole fact and the idea of the United Nations is something good and special. Now, wait a minute, Bill. Let's get back to where we were talking about, about the Declaration of Independence. Now, in the first We've place... We've never left it, Eddie. We've never left it. Tehran, the Charter, all these things, they're sort of the great-grandsons of stuff like the Declaration. Certainly. If a man writes a fine document 150 years ago, he's a hero, but he writes it today, he's a politician. Believe me, when I leave my family this trip, it'll be for the duration, maybe for a good deal longer. And if I'm not coming back, at least I want my people to have an insurance policy on my life. And the best policy I know about so far is the one the Allies wrote there at Terrahan. Yeah, yeah. And there's a captain in my company who talks like you, too, but nobody pays any attention to him either. Oh, Eddie, what a thing to say. I think you want to apologize to Oh, no, 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 no. That's all right, Rita. 
Well, look, I've got to be getting along anyway, and that's as good a place as any to leave the discussion. Well, now, hold on, Bill. You no, no, to... don't you go, Bill. Please stay and have some tea with no, me. No, 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 really, really. Not I, sure, I, 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 no, no, no. Come on, come no. on, Bill. And say, we really love you, you know. Only I know. Even though we, we don't agree with you. Sure, Bill, I will. No, 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 really. Look, look, I must go. I, I'm late now. I told Ed and I'd drop around now, so... Well, good night, everybody. And I hope that before I go, we get a chance... Oh, George, look. Here comes a boy with your telegram from McCausland. Where? Well, he's right there, crossing the street. Hmm, it's about time he let me know. Nearly a whole day to labor that thing. George W. Eakins live here? Yes. Telegram for you. Oh, I see. I'm there. Okay. Here you are. Thanks. If it doesn't get me those reservations, I'm just going to... Well, what's he say? What is it, Pa? What's the matter, George? Here, give it to me. The War Department regrets to inform you that your son, James Fish Egans, is missing. But he's a meteorologist. Well, how can he be missing? He's stationed in England. That's... That can't be right. There must be a mistake here. Maybe it's the wrong... Jim... But it just says missing. Lots of guys who are missing later. I... I'm going inside. Excuse me, everybody. I'm going inside. Yeah, yeah. Let me help you, Mother. I'm sorry, Eddie. Believe me, I'm sorry. Ed, here's... Oh, Jim's all right. He's missing, that's all. Lots of guys who are missing later turn up. Don't they, Bill? Don't they turn up later? Sure, Eddie. Lots of them. Sure. Jim isn't dead, I know that. You can't kill a guy like Jim. He'll turn up. Of course he will. Sure. You're here with us right now, Bill. Can you stay for a little while? Yes, do stay, Bill. Of course. Bill, I... Come in the house. Come on in. I'll make something to drink for you. Many families held their breath that autumn and winter, waiting with hope that those overseas fighting in both Europe and the Pacific Theater would return. For the next two hours, you're invited to listen to Christmas on the Blues. On Christmas Day, 1944, the now independently owned Blue Network, who'd soon officially change their name to the American Broadcasting Company, broadcast a two-hour spectacular called Christmas on the Blue. New York, San Francisco, Paris, Pearl Harbor, and the European battlefront. To make your Christmas a merrier one, you'll hear Paul White Fernandez Orchestra. 
Wendell Niles and Don Prindle, Lawrence Tibbet and Reese Stevens. It was a special filled with B-level stars to help promote the new network's plans for 1945. It was also a cheerful and slightly subdued celebration. But for the first time, Americans could feel the end of the war victoriously approaching. Before we switch you to New York to hear American families talk with their fighting men overseas, I'd like to remind you of just one thing. Those valiant men and women are spending their Christmas in muddy shell holes, jungles, and on desert islands so that we can spend Christmas in our warm, comfortable homes. Help bring them back next Christmas by buying more bonds than you have ever bought before. Please don't forget them this Christmas. And now, Christmas on the Blue takes you 3,000 miles... Before the war ended, on April 12, 1945, President Franklin D. Roosevelt, then at the outset of an unprecedented fourth term, passed away at Warm Springs, Georgia. He was 63. FDR had guided the U.S. through the greatest economic depression in the country's history and the greatest world war in modern times. He left behind a lasting legacy that still endures, and he'd use radio as his chief medium to communicate with the citizens that had re-elected him over and over. First of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. On April 30th, 1945, Adolf Hitler committed suicide during the Battle of Berlin. Germany's surrender was authorized by his successor, Karl Donitz. The final document was signed on the 8th of May in Berlin, Germany. About 2.30 in the morning, General Tui Spatz walks in. He is followed in quick succession by the Russians. Then Air Marshal Robb comes in, Admiral Burrow. Pretty soon, Beetle Smith himself enters, the man who bore the brunt of the long hours of negotiation. Then the Germans come in. Yodel's face is like a death mask, drawn, unnatural looking, and with every muscle in it clenched. They reach the table, bow in unison, and wait. I don't know whether it began with a lust for prestige, it began with a conscionable attitude toward broadcasting. They felt we ought to have a program when the Nazis surrendered. That was VE Day. So they asked me to suspend a series that I was then working on, it was the, the second edition of Columbia Presents Corwin. And I said, no, would you stop, knock off, and immediately begin work on a program to be ready on the night of victory in Europe because we have information from Washington, from the White House, that they expect us to be imminent. So I did. There was no time to be lost, and I prepared on a note of triumph. On May 13, 1945, with war in the Pacific still going on, Norman Corwin's On a Note of Triumph was broadcast. Sixty million tuned in. Lauded by Carl Sandberg as one of the all-time great American poems. Martin Gable narrated. Bernard Herman conducted. Is victory a sweet dish, or isn't it? And how do you think those lights look in Europe after five years of blackout going on to six? Brother, pretty good. Pretty good, sister. The kids of Poland soon will know what an orange tastes like. And the smell of honest-to-God bread, freshly made and sawdust-free, will create a stir in the streets of Athens. There's a hot time in the old town of Dnieper Petrovsk tonight. 
And it is reasonable to assume the same goes for a thousand other cities, including some Scandinavian. It can at last be said without jinxing the campaign. Somehow, the decadent democracies, the bungling Bolsheviks, the saps and softies were tougher in the end than the brown shirt bully boys. And smarter too, for without whipping a priest, burning a book or slugging a Jew, without corralling a girl in a brothel or bleeding a child for plasma, far-flung ordinary men, unspectacular but free, rousing out of their habits in their homes, got up early one morning, flexed their muscles, learned as amateurs the manual of arms, and set out across perilous plains and oceans to whop the bejeepers out of the professionals. This they did. The kind of uh, impression it made both in the listening audience of the general public and within the radio industry was extraordinary in that the president of Mutual Broadcasting and Competing Network sent a telegram to Paley saying, when radio distinguishes itself in this fashion, it is good for the entire industry, and we want to congratulate you and thank you. And, you know, that kind of thing. CBS itself, the program originated here in California, but at New York at 45 Madison Avenue, the headquarters of the network, a memorandum went around that day, the following day, saying, those of you who missed that broadcast last night, for those of you, we are declaring an hour suspending work for an hour between three and four this afternoon and all of the audition rooms will be available to have that program piped into these rooms so that those who missed can hear it and those who heard it can hear it again. Uh, you know, it was given that kind of treatment. It is a little hard in the light of, uh, of the technological and productional advances that have been made since that time, which after all, 30 years ago, right, to estimate the degree of novelty and excitement that that generated. It was quite new, and the devices which I used and the kind of uh, rhapsodic sweep of the concept were entirely fresh. The first eyewitness account of the explosion of the first atomic bomb on Japan has just come in from the Pacific. It is given by the men who carried this revolutionary new instrument over Japan and unleashed its fury squarely on the militarized city of Hiroshima. Back safely at their base, they report the blast, first of its kind in all the long history of warfare, was tremendous and awe-inspiring, and that the destruction must have been extensive. From their modest words, it's clear that this historic mission was a complete success. Three months later, at the behest of new President Harry Truman, the United States dropped an atomic bomb on the cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki on August 6th and 9th. 7 p.m. Eastern Wartime, Bob Trump. Japan surrendered the within Japanese the week. have accepted our terms fully. That's the word we've just received from the White House in Washington. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the end of the Second World War. The United Nations on land, on the sea, in the air, and to the four corners of the earth are united. They called me up, uh, gave me about six hours notice. 
they called me and said, would you go on the air with something on VJ? I did a 15-minute thing. In those days, one was very rich in, in the talent resources, and I had no less than Orson Welles and Olivia de Havilland do that for me. That was called 14 August, which is published. It appears in the last of the three collections called Untitled and Other Down. Congratulations for being alive and listening on this night. Millions didn't make it. They died before their time, and they are gone and gone. For the fascists got them. They are not here, but their acts are here. Oh, there was a it, right. network injunction against that. They mm -hmm. were, it was forbidden to use any kind of recording of the, of the voice. Couldn't even use recorded music. So all my music had to be live and, and was original. My scores were written, were composed for my shows. None of this canned music stuff. My mama done told me when I was in knee pants. My mama done 1945, as the war ended, Bing Crosby decided that he wanted to pre-record his Kraft Music Hall program on NBC. There had been transcription discs since the late 1920s. And while the mutual broadcasting system had no such restrictions on pre-recorded programs, NBC and CBS forbade the use of them on network shows. Crosby was adamant. A captain in the signal corps who uh, had come back from Germany, he'd spent some time over there after the war, a year or two, and he brought back, uh, I don't know whether he brought back a prototype of a tape machine or whether he just brought back uh, the knowledge of how to put one together. But anyhow, he built one and showed it to us, and it was practical, and it seemed to me we could get the same result as a live show, taping in front of an audience, and still have an opportunity to edit or delete or interpolate anything that we... Uh, wanted to do after the show was finished, although lots of times there was no necessity to uh, touch the show at all. And again, you could tape it uh, any day you wanted. You could tape it two or three days in a row if you wanted, if uh, it appeared that you were going to want three or four weeks off for a trip. It seemed to me an ideal thing, but uh, the networks didn't want it, didn't like it. They felt it would break up the networks or something, and the trade papers uh, opposed it, the taping, like Variety and The Hollywood Reporter and... Well, maybe not the Hollywood Reporter, but the Zitz and the, the other theatrical weeklies were against it. Uh, I think I finally uh, got a little petulant about it, I, or adamant. I said, well, it's going to be that way, or, uh, or get a new boy or something. NBC and Kraft refused to budge. Crosby walked out. For the beginning of the 1945-46 season, the Kraft Music Hall was carried by comic Frank Morgan, with pianist Eddie Duchin, and the Charioteers provided vocals. Longtime Crosby collaborator and composer John Scott Trotter remembered those days. He got disenchanted with having to be at a certain point every week. And he became disenchanted with audiences, not with people, but with audiences of people who camped in the neighborhood of Sunset and Vine. There were certain people who had a horrible laugh. They exploited this because their friends would say, I heard you laugh on the Bing Crosby show. I heard you laugh on the Hope show, you know? Uh, you know. <laughs> so 
in the later years when tape came in, Bing went to his own expense of transporting the show to San Francisco. We made many of the shows in the Marine Auditorium in San Francisco. We went up on Sunday night and recorded on uh, in late Monday afternoon and came back. Crosby's walkout lasted for seven months. He declared his contract null and void. Kraft insisted his 1937 contract had an option that lasted until 1950. Crosby refused to budge. Kraft took him to court. The company sued for a declaratory judgment and named Crosby and the ad agency J. Walter Thompson as plaintiffs. A settlement brought Crosby back for the final 13 weeks of the season. The settlement also released Crosby from his contract and gave him the freedom to explore the possibilities of pre-recording his show, if he could find a willing network. The American Broadcasting Company jumped in. They agreed on a weekly budget of $35,000, of which Crosby would receive $8,000. Crosby signed. Now... They had to find a sponsor. Back in 1936, NBC's parent company RCA, with David Sarnoff's instigation, got the FCC to approve a Radio Manufacturers Association Engineering Committee to seek a technical consensus on an industry standard for radio sets. RCA also had this idea in mind for their experimental television sets they planned to take to market. One rival company in particular, Philco, disowned the agreement, claiming the committee was stacked with RCA supporters. According to them, RCA was vying for complete control over the patents needed to manufacture radio and television sets. Philco had been manufacturing ornate radio cabinets and by 1933 was outselling RCA. This bitter rivalry came back into the fold. Philco became Bing Crosby's new sponsor on ABC. The transcribed Philco Radio Time premiered on the Upstart Network on October 16, 1946. Bob Hope was Crosby's special guest. When the blue of the night meets the gold of the day, someone waits for me. Carpenter welcoming you to the world premiere of Philco Radio Time, produced and transcribed in Hollywood with John Scott Trotter, his orchestra and chorus, the charioteers, Lena Romai, Skitch Henderson, and starring Bing Crosby. <laughs> well, Bing, here we are in a brand new program with Philco. What kind of a show are we going to have? Well, I figure on something effervescent, charming, gay, carefree, bright, sparkling, scintillating, ebullient. Uh, no dull spots, huh? Well, there may be a lull tonight. Bob Hope's coming over a little later, and this is a little late for him this time of the evening. But before Trowel Nose gets here, let's have some music, huh? Twenty-four million people tuned in, making the show that week's fourth highest rated on the air. Although the ratings would fall and then rise back up into the mid-teens... The radios Crosby touted on the air sold out nationally after each show. Philco Radio Time was entrenched, and transcribed shows were now here to stay on the major networks. For NBC and David Sarnoff, 
Bing Crosby wouldn't be the last big star to leave the network in the second half of the 1940s. In this special closed-circuit broadcast to the managers and staffs of all CBS stations, Mr. Paley has asked that he might be the first to speak to you. Gentlemen, Mr. Paley. I have asked to speak first so that I might have the pleasure of introducing Jack Benny. In a few moments, we'll pick up Jack Benny and Amos and Andy, too, speaking in Hollywood. But before we do that, I want to take the opportunity to say something else. It is in many ways, I think, the most significant thing I could say here, and that CBS, in fact, can say to the world. It is not about the developments of the past few weeks which have happily resulted in bringing Benny to CBS so soon after Amos and Andy. We all can see what this means to our Sunday night schedule and to our competitive strength and prestige as a network. But I'm thinking of something more important. It's the network Jack Benny is coming to. The network we are today. CBS is now the leader. Today, not tomorrow. That is what I take deepest pride in as I talk to you. Oh, give me land, lots of land Under starry skies above Don't fence me in Next time on Breaking Walls, Stubborn General, a tax code, and radio's most popular comedian, combined to shift the balance of power in the radio and television industry for decades to come, as Jack Benny, Amos and Andy, Red Skelton, Burns and Allen, and others all simultaneously leave NBC for the greener pastures of William Paley's Columbia Broadcasting System. The reading material used in today's episode was The General, David Sarnoff and the Rise of the Communication Industry by Kenneth Bilby. The Encyclopedia of Old Time Radio by John Dunning. Beating the Odds, The Untold Story Behind the Rise of ABC by Leonard H. Goldenson with Marvin J. Wolfe. Empire, William S. Paley and the Making of CBS by Louis J. Paper. The Museum of Broadcast Communications Encyclopedia of Radio by Christopher H. Sterling as well as four articles from the archives of Time Magazine. Happy Birthday, MBS, from 9-15-1941. Old Law vs. New Thing, from 1-12-1942. Black and Blue, from 1-11-1943. And Network Without Ulcers, from 4-21-1947. Norman Corwin was with Chuck Shaden on August 8, 1976. You can stream this interview and many others for free on Chuck's site, speakingofradio.com. Selected music featured in today's episode was Rudy Valley, Brother, Can You Spare a Dime? Jacqueline Schwab, Battle Cry for Freedom, Bing Crosby's Blues in the Night, and Don't Fence Me In with the Andrews Sisters. I'd especially like to thank Larry and John Gaspin, as well as Walden Hughes for their continued help and support. They host a program on the Yesterday USA Radio Network, which you can visit at yesterdayusa.com. The three gentlemen are also members of Spurdvac, the Society to Preserve and Encourage Radio Drama, Variety, and Comedy. They're having their next convention this coming November 1st through the 3rd at the Crown Plaza Hotel at 3131 Bristol Street, Costa Mesa, California. For more information, please go to spurdvac.com. I'd also like to thank our sponsors for this episode, the Fireside Mystery Theater, and 
12 Chimes, It's Midnight. Both podcasts can be easily found on iTunes. Breaking Walls episode number 83 will focus on the CBS talent raids of 1949, the disintegrating relationships in the life of David Sarnoff, and the entrance of a new medium, television. This episode will be available beginning September 1st, 2018. Until that time, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls episode number 82. I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. Till I see the mountains rise. I want to ride to the ridge where the west commences and gaze at the moon till I lose my senses and I can't look at hobbles and I can't stand fences. Don't fence me in. No. Papo, don't you fence me in.